The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. We're delighted and honored to welcome you for this afternoon's teleconference session for the month of June with the title of Litigation Trends of Lawsuits that Murthy Law Firm has filed and the general litigation trends that we're seeing to help all of you as employers and employees going through the immigration process. As many of you know, uh, you're very familiar based on the different cases that are out there with the idea of suing the federal government, even if you personally may not have filed a lawsuit. And over the past uh, four years plus with the prior administration, we have seen that uh, the different kinds of lawsuits that are filed against different government agencies to force them to make a decision on a delayed case or to challenge any denial once it is received. Joining me for today's teleconference on our discussion are my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Adam Rosen, who's uh, an assistant managing attorney and a member at the Murthy Law Firm and has been with the firm for over 15 years. Uh, Korzad Mehta, a senior attorney as well with oodles of experience, probably been with the firm at this point maybe about 10 years and focusing on and helping on immigration, uh, immigration obviously, and litigation as well. But uh, Adam Rosen is our firm's litigation uh, head, uh, supervising attorney in charge of litigation-related issues at the multi-law firm. So just continuing a little bit of the introduction before I invite uh, Adam and Korzat to jump in, are that many of you as employers and individuals are very aware that going to federal court to sue the USCIS over a denial uh, might actually be a better option than, for example, refiling the petition or even filing what's called a motion to reopen or reconsider or filing an appeal. Um, and the, the problem that we have seen and that many of you may be aware of is that with motions and with appeals, it often goes back to the same service center that denied the petition or application in the first place. And so they often end up just in issuing another denial. Uh, and even when it goes to the AAO, because the AAO, the Administrative Appeals Office with an appeal, is actually a part of the USCIS, and they're responsible for ensuring that their decisions are consistent within the agency, the AAO issues a slightly better written de denial decision than what the USCIS service center may have originally issued. So bottom line is you're not getting an approval. So what's the point of wasting time and money? Because sometimes the appeals can take a year, two years, three years. Um, and very often we've also seen where the AO very well could come back instead of giving us a final approval. They, uh, in, and instead of reopening the case, they just send it back. They reopen the case and send it back with instructions to the particular service center to issue another RFE or to gather more evidence on the case. So what we recommend and what we've seen, which we're going to discuss today, of course, is the alternative to filing these motions or appeals is to instead refile 
sometimes we've done that as well to refile the H1 petition, which also has its downsides. Uh, because at least in the past several years, we have seen that that not only doesn't make any difference, it actually comes back to the same issue and you're spending a lot more in filing fees, though the cost of not having a valued employee working and the employee's family's impact, um, you know, people sometimes try to do the H-1 petition, but especially after the IT Serve Alliance lawsuit and other cases, we've seen that, you know, maybe actually filing the lawsuit, even though for people born in other countries and cultures that they come across as a little harsh and abrasive, in reality, in the United States, our legal system and the way the USCIS and Department of Homeland Security are set up, it could actually be a time-saving and a cost-saving in the long run. So just to continue the discussion in terms of explaining why is litigation still popular, I'm going to invite Adam Rosen to just share some thoughts. Adam? Sure. Thank you very much, Sheila. So litigation is still popular because the denial rates for H-1B petitions are still high. They've increased significantly over the years, rising from 6% in fiscal year 2015 to a range of 20 to 30% now. And while the fiscal year 2020 denial rate remains at 21% from fiscal year 2019, so it didn't actually increase during those two periods, this is still a very high number from what we used to experience, and that can be very hard to bear by many employers. Now, the denial rate for new H-1B petitions for initial employment rose from 6% um, um, to only 21% through the third quarter, and this is the state of fiscal year 2020, and this is the same rate as fiscal year 2019, but only because there was a drop in the number of denials of new petitions in that quarter. So there are a number of different factors that are coming into play here. Now, there's also the weariness factor, which you discussed a bit, Sheila, is that after getting RFE after RFE and trying to guess, you know, whether the evidence that employers are submitting to immigration will be enough to satisfy them and convince USCIS to approve a case, they've decided that when that denial comes in, they don't want to go back and refile again and go through the same uh, guessing game and stress as previously and would rather take their chances with challenging the denial they have in hand with the court. And so as a consequence, um, because in, as this is happening, employers are being successful when they're going to federal court, maybe not always, but certainly um, not at a worse rate than at USCIS, litigation is still and continues to be a serious option that employers are considering. I was just going to say that there are different kinds of litigation that can play out differently, and I think that, um, so that that's one of the things that we'll be discussing today. Exactly, exactly. So thank you, Adam. And so I'm going to invite Korzad Mehta to jump in and Korzad talk a little bit about, I know there are different kinds of lawsuits that can be filed, but the most common one, of course, is the writ of mandamus, which many people get confused if they haven't done research because it's a Latin word uh, and what it means, and you'll explain how it works. So why don't I invite you, Korzad, to jump in? Thanks, Sheila. Thank you very much. Um, so as you said, uh, you know, a common vehicle in federal court litigation when it comes to immig administrative immigration actions like petitions and applications is filing what's known as a writ of mandamus or what we in the trade call a WOM, W-O-M, writ of mandamus, WOM. Um, the writ of mandamus is a lawsuit that is filed against the government asking the court, this federal district court, to order the U.S. government to make a decision. Notice what I said. I didn't say they were going to order the government to approve the case that's the subject of the lawsuit. I didn't say they're going to order the government to deny the case that were, that's the subject of the lawsuit. I said that they're going to 
mandate, which is where that mandamus mm -hmm. comes from, mandate that the government make a decision on the case. And the decision can be an approval or a denial. These uh, writs are, th these lawsuits, WAMs, are a very versatile type of legal case. They can be used in pretty much any kind of situation that requires the government to make a decision. And, you know, when it comes to immigration applications, immigration petitions, these are actions that are filed with the federal government, with the administrative agency, USCIS, to get a decision. The decision we want, of course, is an approval. But, you know, because the, you know, whenever a case is filed, a government has to take a decision. The writ of mandamus can force them to make that decision if they're otherwise kind of sitting on it. So that means any kind of application. It doesn't have to be just an H-1B petition. It can be an immigrant visa petition or an uh, adjustment of status application when the priority date is current and it's been sitting there for a long time. It doesn't have to be an adjustment of status application. It can be an EB-5 investor uh, petition, I-526, or, or you know, even visa, um, visa applications at consulates abroad if they're you know, sitting there for security checks, government cannot just sit there while, and have them be uh, waiting. They, they have to make a decision on it, and a writ of mandamus can compel them to make that decision, either to issue or to refuse. Uh, but, you know, filing a writ of mandamus is asking government to make an extraordinary remedy to, uh, to compel the government to make that decision. And because it's kind of that extra step, we at the Murthy Law Firm have always been careful with such cases so that we can maximize our success for our clients to get a decision. So sometimes while it might be appropriate because of how long a case is pending, in other uh, situations, if, even if the case is pending a short amount of time, we may still recommend a writ of mandamus because other, uh, other factors might demand results sooner like loss of employment or uh, accruing enough of unlawful presence inside the United States, such that if you were to depart, you'd be subject to a three or a 10 year bar. While it's not a requirement to contact USCIS directly or go through a congressional inquiry or, you know, or what we, or what we commonly call, even though it's, you know, it's not, a, it's not an all encompassing term, but exhaustion of your other remedies, though they may not absolutely be required, it's something that's definitely recommended because you kind of want to go to the government when you're filing a lawsuit with a, with a record and a trail of how you tried in every which way before you finally took the ultimate step to file suit against the government to try to resolve this through, uh, through the administrative channels, inquiries, uh, you know, if, if, if able to uh, a, um, uh, you know, congressional help, and we're stymied at every step before, you, you know, you finally had to take this step to go into um, federal court. Uh, if you've taken these steps to try and resolve the matter, and the case still remains pending and the problem still looms, that's when this type of lawsuit challenging USCIS or other agency delay, Department of State in the case of visa applications, is a good idea. Exactly. Thank you, Corzad. Makes perfect sense. And I think one of the biggest trends that we've been seeing in mandamus litigation, I know there were people, you know, law firms that were doing 100, 200, 300 cases all together, almost like a mass action lawsuit slash class action, but it was more mass action than class action was the H4 EAD mandamus cases. Uh, as, we, as many of you are aware, in 2019, USCIS pretty much stopped processing H4 applications and EADs along with the H-1B petition, especially when both were filed in the premium processing program or even otherwise. They wasted more time and money 
separating the two applications slash petitions, separating it so that they could basically try to solve the agenda of the prior administration in no longer approving uh, H4EADs. They couldn't do it legally or properly through rulemaking, so they figured this was a simple way to do it. And then, of course, as many of you know, they even started the biometrics requirements for H4 applicants uh, a couple of years ago in 2019, and this further delayed the H4 and EAD issue, uh, issuances, which, as we know, have been taking anywhere from an average 8 to 13 months. And then the pandemic, of course, only created additional hurdles and delays in times. Uh, and so a lot of people on H4 EAD started losing their jobs. Their family relied on the income when they bought a home and were paying the mortgage or making the car payments, or paying for their children's private school education, et cetera. And while these delayed H-4 and EAD applications are increasingly the subject of mandamus cases, people are also, as we know, turning towards the writs of mandamus wombs or mandamus or writs as they're called for many, many other types of cases. So in addition to the, the whole litigation issue, you have something that's referred to as venue, meaning jurisdiction. So what I'm going to do is invite Adam Rosen to share and talk a little bit about the nexus, the legal requirement for some kind of a venue to explain how that works in the litigation context. Adam? Sure. So this is something that's come up as a bigger issue um, in the past six months or so, given the volume of cases being filed. So venue basically is a requirement that a case be filed in a federal court that has some kind of logical connection with the dispute with the government. And for many attorneys and um, law firms, they've been filing the filing cases in the federal court in Washington, D.C. because of the fact that the Immigration Service is, is located there. So an example, just to help um, understand this concept, is in a case involving a delayed I-45, you look at the following. Where, was, where is the I-45 pending? Where does the I-45 applicant live? So the location that's the answer to these questions is usually going to be where you would file the lawsuit. And so you could try and file it in Washington, D.C., because that's where the USCIS headquarters is, but that might not be where the application is actually located or the applicant is actually living. And the idea behind this concept is that the case should be at a location, at a federal court, that's convenient for the individual should they need to be there in person. And the... the um, Nature of a lot of these cases, however, is the fact that the presence of the plaintiff, this individual, whether it's the 45 applicant or the H4 applicant, isn't really required there, but this requirement is still present. So, and, so as a result, the volume of cases has basically pushed the federal government's lawyers to file motions with the D.C. federal court, where many of these cases have been filed, to have them transferred to other courts across the country, and they would pick a specific court that they want the case to be transferred to. And so oftentimes, for cases that are currently being filed in Washington, D.C. that the government wants transferred, they'll reach out to the opposing attorney saying, hey, we're going to move to transfer this case to X court. Are you going to oppose this or not? Now, if there are multiple courts, then you can certainly reach out as the opposing counsel and say, well, I'll agree to transfer to this court, but not to the other one. And usually in that situation, the government is inclined to agree because the whole idea of this is that they're looking to facilitate the process of moving the case out of there, and they're really not going to have a good explanation to argue for one, um, one court over another if, there is, if both of them have a reasonable connection. And so 
really what it's come down to at this point is that mo the, the cases that would normally be filed in Washington, D.C. would be either ones where, let's see, the individual applicant actually lives in Washington, D.C., or if it, if it involves a case where the plaintiff, the person suing, is suing the Department of State and that person is outside of the United States. So in that situation, it's you, it's generally reasonable to just file the lawsuit in Washington, D.C. federal court because the person's not living anywhere else. And the ultimate responsibility for the visa application at any of the consulates around the world lies with the Department of State in Washington, D.C. Um, now, the one other thing that's sort of developed a little bit differently is that if you have a case involving a decision made by the Administrative Appeals Office, you could actually, uh, that you want to challenge, you could actually file the lawsuit in the federal court in Maryland, which is where Murphy Law Firm is located, because in the past year or so, the Administrative Appeals Office has actually moved to a new um, headquarters office in um, Camp Hill, Maryland, which is kind of close to D.C., but since it's in Maryland, if you are actually challenging that decision issued by AAO, you actually go to federal court in Maryland as opposed to um, D.C. or anywhere else. Um, and so that is that's sort of it, it, this is really probably this is probably the the biggest new issue that's come up, and mainly because as we discussed earlier, more and more people and employers are suing the government in federal court. And until recently, filing your case in federal in federal court in D.C. has not raised any kind of question by the um, the Justice Department. Got it. So, so Adam, just to make it clear, then you're saying the a, a law firm that is headquartered or located. In, with an office or a major presence in Maryland, like the multi law firm, in, a, in that sense, has an advantage or an edge over law firms almost anywhere else in the country that may not be located in the Maryland jurisdiction if they're trying to appeal an AAO decision, because then they would have to engage local counsel in Maryland to help them if they are, unless they are, you know, barred or allowed to, you know, represent a right. pro hoc vice or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. Okay, good. Okay, so, so there, that's one more advantage in working with our incredible team here at the Musi Law Firm. Thank you, Adam. So let's now jump to the H-1B issues that have been litigated most commonly with regard to H-1B petitions. And, of course, the most common re reason that the, the, at least in the prior administration we've been seeing, and some of them are still unfortunately continuing, is, of course, the issue of specialty occupation because that's in the actual statute and the regulations, et cetera. So I'm going to invite Korzad to talk about how that works, specialty occupation, and maybe discuss a case like the Inspection Expert Corporation case, uh, Korzad? Um, I would actually say that the, um, that the, that the USCIS's increasing uh, reticence with respect to H1, approving H-1B petitions uh, based on a specialty occupation issue, reached its zenith during the last administration, but has been a common issue for well over a decade. Uh, and you know, I, I think that it hit, it hit its zenith, like I said, during the last administration. Uh, there have been um, a few lawsuits over the years challenging USCIS's denials of the H-1B petitions because the job does not meet even one of the four criteria for specialty occupation. Um, you know, before we jump into the weeds here, just good idea is to, to review uh, so everybody can appreciate where these courts are going. The, the four different ways that an employer can show that the job they're offering is a specialty occupation are one, whether the job requires a U.S. bachelor's or higher degree or its equivalent for, to, as a normal entry point 
for uh, beginning or working in the in the proffered uh, occupation. Two, so this is or the bachelor's degree requirement for the job is common to the industry or the job is that the employer is offering is so complex or unique that, that it can only be performed by an individual with a degree, regardless of what the rest of the industry requires. Three, the employer normally requires a bachelor's degree or its equivalent for the position. Or four, the nature of the specific duties in the job uh, you refer, that the employer is offering in this H-1B position are so specialized and so complex that the knowledge required by a person to perform these duties is normally gained by earning a bachelor's degree or higher degree. So these four criteria, an employer only has to show one of them. They're read in the, what's known as the disjunctive. You don't have to prove all four to, uh, to show that your, uh, your, your, the, your proffered position is a specialty occupation. You, you, you have to prove just but one of them. Um, and there have been some federal court decisions on this issue over the years, kind of started off with a, uh, a case called residential finance in Ohio, uh, Southern District of Ohio that dealt with um, the denial of an H-1B petition for a market research analyst, but it snowballed since then. The residential finance was an outlier for a long time, but in that time, as jurisprudence has uh, has developed, there have been uh, more uh, decisions that, ha- that that have rounded out how to attack these issues in federal court. And one of them is inspection is the Inspection Experts Corporation case. Um, this case was filed in the U.S. District Court in North Carolina, and that court ruled against USCIS, saying that the government had improperly denied an H-1B petition after the agency uh, claimed that the position did not qualify as a specialty occupation. The employer in this case had said that their job, their proper job, required a bachelor's degree or higher in mechanical engineering, computer science, or related technical or engineering fields. USCIS saw those requirements and found them to be overly broad and therefore denied the case. However, the law says that to be a specialty occupation, the job has to require a degree that will prepare you with the knowledge and uh, expertise to do the duties of the, uh, of the position. So it's not that you have to have a specific degree. Uh, you have to have a degree that prepares you and has a connection or relationship between the degree and the job. The court held that that interpretation is unreasonable. Um, you know, one of the more interesting things about this case is that it was issued after the Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Kaiser v. Wilkie. Kaiser v. Wilkie is not an immigration case. Kaiser v. Wilkie is a Supreme Court case that revolves around when a federal court is supposed to accept a government agency's interpretation of its regulations and when it should question a federal government's uh, interpretation of its own regulations and, and step in and say, no, the government's interpretations do not make sense and, and, and thereby you know, adhere more closely to how the law is written and not how the, how the regulation is interpreted. Um, this case, the one in North Carolina, Inspections Experts Corporation, uh, appears to be one of the first immigration-related cases where the federal judge actually analyzed whether the USCIS's interpretation of its H-1B regulations is entitled to that deference um, or agreement by the court that the, that the Supreme Court talked about in the Kaiser v. Wilkie case. And in this particular decision, this judge in the U.S. District uh, Court in North Carolina determined that USCIS's interpretation was not entitled to deference, and that's why ruled for the company. Um, the principles and ideas of this district court case can be ap- applied pretty broadly uh, to other um, 
cases where USCIS is interpreting its regulations, you know, just beyond H-1B. So this was a kind of a, you know, exciting development in this uh, federal court jurisprudence as it goes to U.S. immigration law and even within admin laws in general. Thank you so much, Korzad. So absolutely. And so what we're going to do is just discuss a couple more cases, maybe two or three more cases to just give, give you a flavor of what's going on. Uh, similar to what Korzad just explained with the Inspection Expert Corporation case, you have the tailor-made software case, uh, which involved an H-1B case for a computer systems analyst. And again, in this case, the employer was successful uh, against the denial issued by the USCIS. As many employers are aware, USCIS loves to quote from the U.S. Department of Labor's OOH, the Occupational Outlook Handbook, or OOH, and they say that because that particular OOH mentions that some employers will accept less than a bachelor's degree, according to the USCIS, then the job obviously is not a specialty occupation position. But we all know that makes no sense, and the reason it makes no sense is that, and the federal court basically agreed with it, is that the logic should prevail in how the law and the OOH is interpreted. In this particular case, in the tailor-made software case, the judge actually opined and ruled that the DOL's Occupational Outlook Handbook states that a bachelor's degree in computer science or information systems is common, although not always a requirement. Therefore, the court explained that common should be interpreted as normally. And again, this makes sense because if someone says normally this is what we do, that does not mean always, but it means generally or normally. So the court wrote that the regulatory criteria is not whether such a degree is always required by the particular employer, etc., or whether some employers do not require it. And so, again, the employer was successful. So as you can see, the lesson from both these cases that Korzad and I explained is that it is worth filing the lawsuit to challenge the government to win for yourself as the employer or for your employees and their families on H-1B. So I'm going to invite Adam now to jump in and talk about a couple other cases like the InfoLabs case and the Indian House case. So thank you, Sheila. The InfoLabs case is another um, case that, involved the Occupational Outlook Handbook. And in that case, the court said that, from their perspective, the statement that a bachelor's degree in computer information science is common, um, even though it's not always required, supports the employer's position that um, a specialized degree or the equivalent is normally the minimum requirement. And that the fact that such a degree is not always required or that there may be some companies that will hire um, analysts with a general business or liberal arts degree does not mean that a specialty degree is not normally required. So basically the court saying what, um, what all of us know that normal de common does not mean always, um, that there can be employers out there that don't require the bachelor's degree. And similarly, the Indian House case um, looked at the question of an H-1B petition for a general operations manager that um, was the um, occupational category used for a restaurant manager where the requirement was a BS in hospitality management. So 
the court said that the denial by the immigration service is arbitrary and capricious, which is the legal standard they use, and basically um, ruling that it was um, appropriate for the restaurant to have that requirement. Um, and they looked at the discussion in the OOH, they looked at the employer's detailed description of the job duties and the fact that immigration had been approving H-1B petitions for the same employer and the same worker and essentially the same job. And so looking at all of these factors together, the court ruled for uh, for the, the employer at this Indian House restaurant. So um, again, it's good to see that the occupational outlook can still be um, can still be useful and, and is being recognized as such by the court. Thank you very much, uh, Adam. So what about this whole deference, return to the deference memo that was like, yoo-hoo, great news for all of us, uh, and how does this impact lawsuits? Uh, so, Korzad, maybe I'll have you uh, jump in and talk a little bit about the deference memo and its impact. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So, you know, a little bit of a history, um, uh, a little bit of a dive into history before we get into it. Uh, up until the previous administration, uh, you know, there was a, a policy that stemmed from, in some cases, provisions within the regulations, but overall from a memorandum uh, that was issued from USCIS or Legacy uh, Immigration Naturalization Service uh, headquarters to the field that instructed adjudicators to evaluate um, petitions that were in front of them for extension with deference to decisions that were previously made uh, to approve those uh, uh, those uh, petitions, absent a material change that required a different. The last administration removed that that uh, that, that memorandum and basically uh, imposed upon adjudicators a requirement that they look at every petition that's been filed for extension, even if it's an extension of a long line of approvals. Uh, you know, with a new, fresh set of eyes, and uh, e and evaluated, uh, you know, on on the merits that way, and that also may have had a lot, to, you know, as, as Sheila was saying early on, may have had a lot to do with, uh, you know, the the backlogs and, and difficulties that we're seeing within the system, exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, the new administration has returned the policy of deference into uh, into um, USCIS adjudication. And this return of the deference memo um, has, has, can also be an important tool in litigation. Uh, a denial decision that does get issued for being a change, uh, you know, a material change requiring denial, should be evaluated carefully for whether or not that opinion by USCIS is correct and whether the deference memo can provide support for a claim against USCIS in federal court. Our litigation experience at the Murphy Law Firm, and, uh, you know, Adam has led this, has included successfully overturning just such denials. Uh, in one case, the employer received an H-1B petition denial for an employee who had been working with them for several years, and, and, and that denial was sudden and without explanation. Uh, our office showed the court the unreasonableness of USCIS's decision, and the government agreed to reverse the denial and approve the H-1B petition. So this is a good tool um, for, positive, uh, for positive results in federal court. Yeah, sounds really exciting. Fantastic. It's always great, I'm sure, for an employer who's willing to, an employee who's willing to say, fine, let's take this leap of faith. Let's invest the time, the resources, the money, the, just the mental, emotional, spiritual energy to, to trying to file these cases to result in some type of an approval uh, like this is always a vindication of one's rights.
Okay, great. So we've discussed a whole bunch of cases, almost I think five cases with you all, four or five cases on the issue of specialty occupation. Let's now jump to the next issue, very common, which was routine and common before, the right of control. We thought that was all gone, but we're seeing it again rear its ugly head, unfortunately. As many of you are aware, the employer's right to control has been one of the most challenging parts of the H-1 petition. Um, and then with the USCIS losing the case in the IT Server of Alliance case last year in March of 2020, uh, the prior administration basically issued a memo withdrawing the prior control memos. And so soon after that happened, we saw an immediate and significant drop in the number of times when the right to control became an issue and when the USCIS issued an RFE or request for evidence about the petitioners and client and all of that, you know, right to control. However, we have started to see a few of these RFEs, as I just said, in the past maybe six months or so. And while this issue still appears to be fairly infrequent, we certainly think it's important to understand and to review the major issues that were addressed by the court on the right of control, because whenever it does come up, that is the way to try to respond to it. Um, and again, if sometimes the government says, well, our regulations, you know, are not the force of law, they're just regulations or whatever, they're trying to come up with it, you can use that um, so, of course, I'm just going to briefly touch upon the IT Server Alliance lawsuit, um, which was, as I just said, it was uh, over a year ago, March of 2020, the Washington, D.C. Uh, court ruled in IT Server Alliances versus CISNA that the Trump administration could not use the USCIS memo that the Trump administration itself had issued from 2018 on requiring contracts or the 2010, the old uh, Neufeld memo, the control memo on H-1B petitions. Basically, the court uh, opined that the current USCIS, USCIS interpretation of the employer and employee relationship requirement is inconsistent with its regulation and that it was announced and applied without rulemaking and hence cannot be enforced. So music to the ears of most employers and employees um, at this point. The limitation of this decision was that it was technically meant to apply only to those cases that were part or parties to the lawsuit. And so the USCIS could technically have applied this, these memos to all the other cases. Uh, however, as we all know, the USCIS decided to settle the lawsuit by actually withdrawing the control and contract memos altogether. And USCIS was in fact getting ready to return control, right to control as a requirement by issuing new regulations, i.e. changing their regulations. However, when the new administration, the Biden administration was voted into power and uh, actually came to office in January, they made sure that they discontinued to stop that process from happening uh, altogether. Um, but we have been seeing some shortened, uh, you know, duration H-1B approvals. Maybe, Adam, I could have you jump in and talk a little bit about that sure sheila the um this, this re remains to be a focus um for, for many different reasons um but the uscis re requirement is that employers provide proof of non-speculative work assignment for the duration of the visa period um and 
so the judge said that this requirement on the part of USCIS um, is this part of this part of it, um, this part, proof of non-speculative work assignment for the duration is not in the regulation, and this is challenged. However, they have the authority to um, approve it for less than the requested three-year period, but they have to explain it. And so, generally speaking, if USCIS is approving um, nowadays is approving an approval for less than the requested period, it's usually been because there's some kind of flaw in what's being requested. Maybe. Um, a petition has been denied, or there's some other issue with as far as how much time is being requested. But um, questioning the duration and potentially approving a petition for less than the full period if one's requesting, let's say, three years, that was something the court said could be done. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be something that happens very often, but um, because it's outside of the scope of what um, the IT Sarah Reliance case one in front of the federal court. It is something just to keep in mind that if USCIS is approving something for a shorter period, that look at whether or not USCIS is right, whether that's something that needs to be challenged, and really, did they ask, did they raise a question about this before they made their decision? Uh, they do have a question about it. That is something that they should be um, they should be asking before before they make that decision to deny it. Um, Okay, so great. Thank you, Adam. I know I'm, I'm trying to be also somewhat mindful of our time in mm -hmm. terms of trying to stick between the 30 to 45 minutes, which I'm pretty sure we will because we should be wrapping up in the next five, six, seven minutes. Um, so, so, so that makes perfect sense. But I think we've been seeing at multi-law firm and generally, hopefully most of you can attest to this, that most approvals now are generally for the full three years, unlike the three months, six months that they were doing to try to squeeze more and more filing fees and legal fees from H-1B employers and employees so that it was costing the company so much more uh, just to file H-1 petitions. The whole idea was to, you know, make it a huge disincentive, I guess, to file H-1 petitions. But luckily, the shorter duration is less of a problem uh, after, you know, everything that's happened in the IT Serve Alliance lawsuit decision. Let's next jump to public charge. I'm going to invite Korzat to talk a little bit about the public charge issue Besides the 944, I think in general the public charge issue is something that the USCIS can or the consular officers can ask with respect to it. But I think the big, big, big case, of course, was 944s and 485s and all that stuff. So, Korzad, uh, I'll have you jump into that. Um, so, you know, the public charge uh, ground of inadmissibility is something that's been on the books for a very, very long time. Uh, intending immigrants and intending non-immigrants to the United States must be able to demonstrate to the satisfaction of the government that they are unlikely to become dependent on government funds to, uh, r while they're in the United States. Um, what the last administration did was expand dramatically the, the types of aid that, a, um, that, that if a foreign national, a non-immigrant non or an uh, intending immigrant received, it would, it would subject them to inadmissibility. That means the inability to get the visa or inability to get the immigration status because they were subject to that um, public charge. And, you know, the, the, as soon as that rule came out, it, there, were, there were a number of different lawsuits filed in a number of different jurisdictions all across the United States uh, to enjoin or, you know, stop, stop that rule from going into effect. And, you know, it, 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 it was enjoined at times and then, uh, the Supreme Court was, uh, did step in at one point and lift the injunctions. So it did go into effect uh, before 
it was um, before it was removed by the current administration. But the kind of history about this particular uh, time uh, in the history of litigation of the public charge issue recently presents an important lesson. Um, the although the form I-944 is no longer of concern because of this litigation, what we've learned is is that you can you can uh, you know kind of delay or shape the implementation enforcement of a rule slow it down even for short bursts of time by pursuing a case against the federal government. Um, and, you know, on, on another, uh, you know, on the flip side, uh, litigation has also been used to challenge fraud findings or other, in, uh, other admissibility issues. We found litigation to be an option to challenge a fraud finding made by the government in secret, for example. Um, some, sometimes happens that USCIS or another immigration agency has gathered information about some event and decided to make a finding of fraud, but litigation, and, and you know, can it can work to remedy that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adam, did you want to add anything before I jump to the conclusion part? Yeah, on the the fraud piece that Corzad is talking about, um, what we've been able to use to help people is the fact that the law has particular steps that the government is generally required to go through before they make a fraud finding because of the consequence of a fraud finding, which is that it bans someone from getting any kind of immigration benefit for their entire life. And so we've been successful in challenging such findings when they're made in secret by the government and gotten them to remove them when this individual had no idea that the finding was made or why the finding was made. And and oftentimes people just discover it when they've applied for a visa and it's refused because of a fraud finding. And so... um, other subjects, other issues may be ripe for litigation, but it's just important, you know, evaluate it. You can talk to somebody about possibly litigating. Even if you're not inclined to do it right away, it might be something that's worthwhile to keep in mind if things don't work out the way um, you're hoping as you go further along in the life of the case. Yeah, makes perfect sense. I mean, to think of, a you know, pretty much a lifelong ban against an individual in the entire family pop. Uh, you know, unable with something that's been, you know, dug up in secret of which they have no clue seems an incredibly, incredibly uh, steep price to pay. And it just sort of seems to violate fundamental uh, rules, you know, uh, enshrined in our constitution and the policies and the the whole spirit of what we stand, you know, but I'm glad that the multi law firm, I'm glad, Adam, you're helping with all these lawsuits too challenge it and save people and open up opportunities for their pe- individuals and their families to be able to apply for the visa by requiring that particular federal agency to remove the fraud finding, especially if they hadn't provided an opportunity to the individual to respond to it or to explain what happened. Uh, but anyway, great. Good news. Congratulations on that. So as, we, as you can all he- listen from this, the lesson of the recent years is that litigation is absolutely an option that you, whether you're an employer, an individual, a family member, for yourself, your family should not be afraid of. If there is a in case of delays um, or, you know, any other similar issues, and there's ex- especially excessive delays that we've been seeing in processing cases, it is certainly a very good option to c- uh, turn to the federal court to challenge the government's extreme excessive delays, like, of course, I've explained the writ of mandamus. Uh, similarly, there's a re- legal problem, like we talked about in the H1 case, that is not being resolved by the USCIS. It's worth looking to see whether it's possible to challenge the government, present the facts, and make an argument that is grounded both in law and in fact to try to get a favorable result from a judge 
in a court of law, one of the huge big benefits of the balance of powers between the judiciary, the executive, uh, and the um, alleged and the court, the court, the legal system. So there are always constantly new issues to deal with in the world of immigration law. As you can see, it's important to keep in mind that litigation is absolutely a good option for you and your company. Um, but with that, I want to say that we are right around the 45-minute mark. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Adam Rosen, Korzad Mehta, and our entire Murthy law firm staff and team, we uh, want to thank you for joining us this afternoon uh, to understand the litigation options for you, whether you're an employer or an employee or a family person. And if you ever need our help, please do not hesitate to contact us at multi.com, law at multi.com, or talking to, our, uh, to Kathy Rush, our client service person. And uh, with that, I want to wish all of you a safe uh, and happy summer. It looks like the world's opening up. And maybe uh, we're all going to get safer and actually get to see each other in person very soon. Stay safe. Have a wonderful summer. And we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Thank you all. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Korzad. Bye now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sheila. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.